this. Jeremy Hardy speaks to the nation. A series of investigations in which amateur sloth Jeremy Hardy lifts the lid on a fine how do you do. This week, how to be a good citizen. Thank you, Citizen Donaldson, for introducing what would otherwise have been a surprise not only to the listener and the studio audience, but also to me and my two guests this evening. From the world of acting, a large warehouse theatre on the North Circular, Carla Mendonca. Hello. And from Kingdom of Heather and land of freshly acquired tax-raising powers, Gordon Kennedy. Good evening. Now, Gordon, welcome back to the programme, and my condolences on your not having won dual citizenship of what would have been two new countries, Scotchland and Rump UK. <laughs> well, I must say passions were running high in Wilsdon, but it's a relief to still have the pound. Yes, I knew your performance fee would cheer you up. Now, <laughs> Carla, welcome to the show. It's your first time with us, but you're an actor who's hugely popular with children and former children from your television programme, My Parents Are Aliens. I never saw it. What country were your parents from? Uh, no, I play the mother and she's an alien. From what country? From another planet. But you have got a foreign name. I'm half Portuguese, but my character isn't. Oh, God, actors, it's all me, 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 isn't it? <laughs> well, let's talk about being a good citizen. My idea of what that means might not be the same as yours. Whereas I see myself as a citizen of the world, you might see me as an old man mumbling to himself as the light in his eyes slowly fades. But when people speak of citizenship, they usually refer to our relationship to the state. And some people see it as an obligation of citizenship to show unflinching loyalty to the state or the crown, which is basically a sparkly metal hat. <laughs> and a popular way to denigrate someone is to challenge their patriotism. Hence, when Ed Miliband had an unexpectedly and uncharacteristically successful party conference last year, the Daily Mail set out to destroy him by means of an attack on his late father, with the headline, The Man Who Hated Britain. It made me wonder if I should check on my own father's allegiance. But he would say, no, I don't hate Britain. I find his operatic work somewhat flamboyant. But nonetheless, <laughs> an intelligent proposal. Ed Miliband, obviously hurt by a slur against his dad, instead of drawing a distinction between hating a thing and hating things about it, felt obliged to rave about how much his dad loved this country. Now, it's one thing to abide by a country's laws, but when did it become compulsory to love where you live? I don't even like our road, if I'm honest. I hate our road. I like our flat and our area, but I hate our road. It's a rat run, gridlock day and night. Why we moved there, I don't know. Well, I do know. It's because we were misled. When we came to view it with the estate agent, it wasn't like that. We thought, oh, this is a nice, quiet residential street. We didn't know it had been cordoned off because of a shooting. <laughs> We thought, oh, lovely, pavement artists doing chalk drawings of the human form. <laughs> now, obviously, Ralph Miliband hated things about Britain. No one loves everything about a country. There are things I hate about Britain and things I love. I love the train across the Pennines and would never want it speeded up or driven underground where it would only become more dangerous and harder for train spotters to keep under surveillance. <laughs> I love pubs and tea and Morecambe and Wise. I love the NHS. But I don't even love everything about that. I don't love A&E at 5am. I'm not proud of our nation to see the hapless nocturnal hedonists who've had such a good night they 
passed their kidneys peeing on a bus shelter, but don't remember because they blacked out after getting into a fight with their own sick. <laughs> but that's the wonderful thing about the health service. It makes no judgment. It asks for no bank details nor ID. Are we bad citizens if we overburden it through our self-destructive indulgences? Yes. And it tries to nudge us onto a path of righteousness but won't abandon us. If it refused to treat drunks and smokers altogether, it would have to start shunning potholers and motorcyclists and people who operate heavy machinery after taking antihistamines. <laughs> What kind of hospital dramas would we have if no one ever climbed a rickety ladder to try and destroy a wasp nest with a surface-to-air missile in the vicinity of an airport? <laughs> they rely on human frailty and dysfunction, as this classic extract demonstrates. Nurse, I need some medical-sounding things, an Asian colleague and a radically different diagnosis. And bash some doors open. Sorry, Doctor. I'm preoccupied with my personal life. It's too late anyway. We've lost him. Does anybody know who he was? If we knew who he was, we'd have found someone who'd have alerted us to his unique blood type, and we might have stood a chance of saving him. But they'd have got hysterical and tried to force their way into the operating theatre. That's the risk we take. This is a hospital, not a prison. I loved him, even though we don't know who he was. If only people with metal heart valves would stop ironing in the bath. <laughs> If people with metal heart valves stopped ironing in the bath, we'd be out of a job. Uh, uh, uh. Come on, let me buy you a drink and you can question my judgment. Don't let our new unpopularly appointed head of something catch you saying that. That's my ex-husband you're talking about. Oh, damn it. What's wrong, Doctor? Nothing. Just these blasted headaches. You're not dying again, are you? If you breathe a word of this, I'll damage your career prospects and or adulterate your insulin. Now, come on, let's try and make it out of the building before someone who used to work here gets mauled by a yeti. <laughs> My point is, we are all social and antisocial creatures. We're in other people's way. Perhaps that's why it's so easy to sow discord among us. Now... I'd like everyone in the audience and all those listening to take part in a mental exercise. Don't be scared, it'll be fun. Think of a number between 1 and 10. Any number, doesn't matter what it is, don't tell anyone else. Just hold that number in your head. Now double it, now add 4, now double it again, now multiply by the number you first thought of and add 6 zeros. That's how the government comes up with figures for benefit fraud and health tourism. <laughs> It's managed to stigmatise migrants, poor people and the disabled without really saving any money. All it's achieved is to spread fear that our taxes are being lavished on Bulgarian hypochondriacs with extra bedrooms hidden in their wheelchairs. In fact, all mainstream politicians say they're on the side of people who work hard and do the right thing, which suggests there is a war in society between the hard-working, doing-the-right-thing citizens and their natural enemy, idle malefactors. Surely, if people are prone to doing the wrong thing, it's best they're as lazy as possible. The last thing we need is highly motivated, highly skilled people working hard to do the wrong thing. That way you end up with an arms industry. <laughs> and I'm not sure where the hard-working, doing the right thing narrative leaves me as someone who asses about for a living and isn't sure what the right thing is. I've never killed anyone, and I don't think I'm a huge drain on the public purse. I don't take penicillin needlessly. I don't wear the pavement out by jogging. I don't outstay my welcome in public parks. And I don't use street lighting to read by. 
And I pay my taxes. But I'm not one of those people who enjoys it. When a political fellow traveller says... Don't you think people like us should pay a lot more in tax? I think, yeah, maybe, but keep your voice down. <laughs> partly because I'm irresponsible and I don't put money aside. And partly because I don't picture my taxes being spent on schools and hospitals. I see subsidies for arms exports. I see Trident. I see all the predatory companies making money out of public services. And I think, to hell with it. I should claim my taxes against tax because if I'm writing about them, they are expenditure necessary to my business. <laughs> this throws up a dichotomy, I think. I've never been entirely sure of the meaning of the word, but here goes. The state means more than one thing. Edward Snowden, who blew the whistle on surveillance, is a conservative. He thinks that as a patriotic US citizen, he had a duty to hold his government to account when it took too much power. And he has support from left and right. The left, while it likes the state to run public services, doesn't like it spying on us and beating us up. And conservative libertarians don't really want the state to do much at all. Right-wingers in general loathe health and safety and bemoan the fact that children's playgrounds are carpeted with wood chips rather than unexploded bombs like they used to be. <laughs> But it's interesting that the police have fallen out of favour with the Conservative Party. Partly, I suspect, because they're public servants doing a difficult job, ripe for undervaluing. I don't mean financially undervaluing in the run-up to a sell-off. I haven't got inside dirt on a bid from G4S or Virgin Oppression. But partly because... <laughs> because libertarian Tories also get worried by the police spying on us and beating us up. The mantra of those who seek ever to extend state surveillance is that those with nothing to hide have nothing to fear. Then why do they close the door behind them when they go to the lavatory? Except when they're in a long-term relationship in which respect has fallen by the wayside as companionship triumphs over adoration. <laughs> privacy? Of course we do. The security services are angry because we found out what they know about us and they wanted it to be a secret. Well, if they're doing nothing wrong, they've got nothing to worry about. <laughs> Part of being a good citizen is saying, I'll keep my eyes open for wrong'uns if you give me some privacy. A good guard dog is one that's curled up at your feet and keeps its nose out of your laptop. But by signing up to all sorts of shiny new IT, we've made the task of spies much easier. Not just GCHQ and policemen, but corporations and prurient individuals. Recently, a number of famous women have been the victims of hacking, their private photos and videos going online. I'm not sure why people take selfies of their pudenda, something I've only done by keeping my phone in trouser pockets with holes in. <laughs> However, if such pictures exist, they are mine and mine alone. I wouldn't want them publicised without considerable photoshopping. <laughs> and I would only text them to a conservative activist by way of an insult. <laughs> there is much that's disturbing about the Brooks Newmark case. The fact that Brooks isn't a first name. The fact that those aren't the kind of positions he was supposed to be getting Tory women into. The fact that the mirror used entrapment. The fact that he should have used a mirror before deciding on what would be an erotic pose. <laughs> the fact that that pose involved paisley pyjamas and what the late founder of the DUP would have thought of his commemorative gym jams being so compromised. <laughs> But Gordon and Carla, you're both actors and sometimes will be asked to appear naked when a script demands it. Yes, Jeremy, but as we explained, radio's not a visual medium and doctors and nurses at work wear all sorts no, of... No, I'm over that. What I mean is, how do you respond to someone who asks what's the difference between doing a nude scene and people seeing your private sex tape? Well, firstly, one's acting... 
People are obsessed with nudity on screen, but there's nothing exciting about shooting a bedroom scene. You do the same sequence over and over. One does that, the other does that, and that goes there, and that goes there, and then you get cramp, and... Well, actually, it is like real life. <laughs> but the point is, if a couple are really having sex and choose to film it, however tragic that might be, it's private. Absolutely. But let's talk more about press intrusion, something the state has been asked to control. Gordon, as the most famous Scottish person in Wellesdon, have you opened... <laughs> Have you opened your front door to find reporters going through your bins? You've seen what Scotsmen eat, Jeremy. No one's going to run their hands through the stuff we reject. <laughs> but surely, as a good citizen, you put your food waste in a separate container. I call that the pending bin. <laughs> it's for possible ingredients not yet ruled out. <laughs> well, fair enough. Well, so far, we've highlighted matters of concern for citizens. But being a good citizen doesn't just mean complaining, damn the luck. What about our responsibilities? Politicians say they're keen for us to take part in the political process. But it's the last thing they want. They want us to use our vote to license them to tell us what's what, not seize power in an anarcho-syndicalist uprising. But everyone was pleased by the high turnout in Scotland, although it was partly explained by the extension of the franchise to 16-year-olds, the first time single malt whiskies have voted. <laughs> in some countries, voting is compulsory, forcing citizens to conspire in their own subjugation. Saying we have a choice assumes there are people worth choosing. It's a bit like making us order a Subway sandwich, except that in Subway there is a breathtaking array of unpalatable options rather than a very few similar toppings on stale white. <laughs> At election times, some people say it doesn't matter who you vote for so long as you vote, which is rubbish. Hitler was elected, and the winner of X Factor is always, without exception, someone who has knowingly taken part in X Factor. <laughs> and herein lies the problem. People who want power are apt to be dicks. You could spot them at university. I do vote, but with a heavy heart. If primary schools were not such uplifting environments, walls adorned with photos of optimistic, unpixelated young faces, I'm not sure I could do it, because I don't live in one of the handful of constituencies that elect an MP whose vision of a better world is one I share. One of the appeals of fringe politicians is that they argue the main parties are in basic agreement, and there is a perceptible coziness in the way supposed opposites snuggle up smart casually on Andrew Neil's sofa in that rather revolting way, or argue politely in one of those pointless late-night chats about the morning headlines, so that when we tumble into bed, we can't wait for morning when we can run to the corner shop and shout, Excuse me! small paper that leads with a halal lasagna found in horse meat scandal. As I've already suggested, the Scottish referendum was unusual in the enthusiasm aroused on all sides. People are tired of the mealy-mouthed debate we're used to seeing on our screens. That's what lies behind the success of Nigel Farage. People think they quite like to go for a drink with him and hear him say slightly pissed, unguarded things that Cameron wouldn't dare to. But Farage went as far as he could with that strategy and then started to police his party. There was no repeat of last year's day, Barkler, when Godfrey Bloom ruined the conference. One silly, sexist joke overshadowing the all-encompassing bigotry of the rest of the event. <laughs> Farage has transformed what was an eccentric pressure group into a right-wing zombie apocalypse. <laughs> we can expect more Conservative MPs to defect in coming months, Mark Reckless being a benchmark for how defective they're likely to be. 
But when Farage is courting Labour voters, he stops sounding like the upper-middle-class Tory that he is and talks disparagingly about big business and war. He also still says daft things and gets torn apart in interviews, but that makes him seem normal, because anyone who's ever applied for a job has been humiliated in an interview. How do you avoid saying something stupid when you're asked? One last question. What most excites you about working for United Sewage? <laughs> and Farage can occasionally be interesting. He has regrettably spent a lot of time stereotyping Roma people as being a criminal underclass, but he's also travelled to Eastern Europe and confirms that they are victims of a appalling discrimination. It's not the most enlightened message. They're all thieves, but who can blame them? But the fact, <laughs> the fact that he even identifies that Roma people have reason to come here for sanctuary as well as work is more than any other party leader has done. Sadly, he's also happy to feed paranoia about the presence of a community who might one day, like British Romanies, be citizens. It's silly to say you'd be worried about living next to a house full of Roma men, except that any exclusively male environment is dysfunctional. You end up with Boko Haram and the Bullingdon Club. <laughs> And in towns where Roma have settled, people's main complaint is that they stand outside a lot. Well, if you were one of ten blokes in a small house, you'd want some fresh air. <laughs> and when did standing become antisocial anyway? They're not doing it in the cinema. They're not doing it to taunt people with bad knees. Is it the static nature of the activity that's the problem? Would it be better if they ran on the spot or bounced up and down? Or is it the use of legs themselves that's so egregious? <laughs> The irony for Ed Miliband, himself the son of immigrants, is that Farage does well by posing as a non-politician, while Miliband is denounced for not looking like a Prime Minister. I'd take that as a compliment. I'd be quite offended if someone said, You look just like a Prime Minister. That's not what you want. Cameron looks like a right Prime Minister. He really does. <laughs> But Boris Johnson doesn't, and he will be one day, partly because, like Farage, he gets an enormous amount of very jovial exposure, and partly because, like Farage, he appears to speak his mind and have fun doing it. I've met Boris twice, and he's very likeable. I know if he found it necessary to round up and massacre his opponents, he would do so, but he would do so in Latin, and with, <laughs> with tremendous joie de vivre, just like happened to the Huguenots. <laughs> And shouldn't we as citizens be less superficial about political choices and think about ideas? I'm sick of hearing floating voters say, Last time I voted Lib Dem, but this time I'm thinking of giving Golden Dawn a try. <laughs> Have some opinions and at least stick to them until I convince you they're wrong. <laughs> But not many politicians are offering anything exciting. The Scottish referendum was a blip, a geopolitical upheaval being in prospect. Most yes voters thought separation offered the chance to do something progressive, even though the SNP's pitch for a green future was based on the oil industry. <laughs> Others were promoting zero-carbon alternatives. Now, I'm not going to berate you as bad citizens for inadequate recycling, because the emphasis on our individual responsibilities is another case of politicians offloading their responsibilities. Do recycle. There's no point, Jeremy. None of it really gets recycled. It's all sent to China, where former Blue Peter presenters make tiny children fashion it into moonscapes to fake landings on. <laughs> Urban myth, Gordon. That's what happens to old computers. But it is true that our efforts as individuals are a drop in a rising ocean. Nonetheless, the fact that people do recycle shows that they try to be good citizens. Joining us in the studio is the author of Making Do With Less, Hermione Pedigree. 
Hello. Hermione, you're passionate about economising and reusing. Tell us about the outfit you're wearing today. Well, I've made all my own clothes since I salvaged a genuine tailor's dummy from an old shop in East London some years ago. An abandoned tailor's shop? Well, he might have been in the back. <laughs> when my dummy eventually got worn out, instead of recovering it, I left it in the garden until there was so much mould on it, I was able to peel it off, dry it out, and hey, presto, brand new blue-green chili. Right, and uh, you're also wearing shoes that are a very bright duck egg blue, made from... Duck eggs, that's right. <laughs> I'd always wondered what it would be really like to walk on eggshells, and we've rescued lots of ducks we found neglected in local parks and rehomed them in our garden. The eggs are delicious, as indeed are the ducks. But we can't bear to waste the shells. And then I had a brain wave. Uh, no, no, not wave. What's the word? Injury. <laughs> and, um, and, and I set about... I set about gluing together bits of shell while I listened to the radio, of which I'm a huge fan. Years ago, I said to my husband, I don't want the children vegetating in front of that wretched goggle box. So we looked into boarding school, and I can honestly say I have never missed them. <laughs> Just in the garden all the time now. He had a heart attack five years ago, and since then he's been winding down. No, not winding down. What's the word? What's... Oh, composting down. Yes, that's it. Thank you very much, Hermione Pettigrew. Uh, will you be needing this microphone again? Uh, not that one, no. Oh, lovely. Roger's hearing isn't what it was. Cheerio. Bye. <laughs> the damage we're doing to our planet is not going to be solved by us all doing our bit in a public-spirited way. It's going to take massive state intervention, which is why so many right-wingers can't bear the fact that it's real. Now, I can understand feeling so passionately about something that you just can't face evidence to the contrary. If the greatest minds in science concluded that red trousers look as splendid on men in light tan brogues as they do on Santa, I would fight them to my dying breath. <laughs> But scientists with the freedom to reach their own conclusions rarely follow a political consensus leading them to identical findings. Mostly, they are good citizens motivated by an imperative to tell us the truth. Yes, if they're mercenary, they can find sugar daddies in the fossil fuel industry who will fund them to find that CO2 emissions are like a giant soda stream injecting added sparkle into life. Who doesn't love a bubbly atmosphere? <laughs> And, of course, some scientists lend their skills to the military-industrial complex. But most of those fascinated by the weather are not the sort of physicists who escaped prosecution at Nuremberg and ended up with American passports. <laughs> Climate experts are thoroughly decent geeks who are reassuringly homely. They make open university professors look like a breakdancing crew. <laughs> If any of them believed everything's going to be fine, they'd say so, and we'd love them for it. And if one out of a thousand says that, he gets all the media coverage. Earlier this year, we faced severe flooding, which prompted a discussion about the climate. In the interest of balance, the BBC always have a debate. On one side, a climate expert. On the other, someone completely unqualified to express any kind of opinion about the climate whatsoever, usually Nigel Lawson. <laughs> Perhaps he does have a handle on flooding, he's clearly amphibious. But he's not... <laughs> he's not a scientist, he's a shrunken ex-chancellor. For younger listeners, he's Nigella's dad. And perhaps it was Nigella's magic icing sugar that helped him lose all that weight. Anywho... <laughs> Anywho, he's 
no longer in government, but he's very active on this because he is ideologically opposed to the idea that capitalism might have any downsides. He's a bit like David Icke, someone who no longer has a job but still craves attention. Most people in that situation join a choir or a creative writing course. But if you've stopped being famous, it can drive you mad. Who'd have thought a power-crazed monster like Tony Blair would become more and more crazed the less power he has? One way round the problem is to start a foundation. Blair's got one, Ike and Lawson have them. I'm not saying Nigel Lawson is exactly like David Ike. In fairness, he doesn't believe the world is run by a conspiracy of lizards, although his very existence lends credence to the idea. <laughs> So what should a good citizen do? We can just get our heads down, do our bit and retweet inspirational quotes from quasi-Buddhist lifestyle gurus, or we can be part of a movement. It's positive to be marching through the streets, but if it's tolerated, it's because it works as a safety valve. The stewards agree with the police to keep things peaceful and nothing gets broken and you don't even get on the news. We might as well march in silence. At least then we'd have an eerie theatrical power. Nothing ever changed because of someone thinking up a rhyming chant involving numbers. Otherwise, our depleted marine life could be replenished by a bloke with a megaphone. One, two, three, four, five. One side caught our fish alive. <laughs> Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Then I threw it back again. <laughs> and although it's great to be united on a single issue, you can find yourself standing under the banner of people with whom you don't agree about anything else, or deafened by an amateur drumming workshop who can only get an audience by latching onto people who are interested in justice and not just a sound of their own percussiveness. <laughs> and then you get handed a leaflet run off on the only remaining Romeo machine in Britain. <laughs> who thinks that he alone understands the true stalactite theory of underground calcite formation in a post-geologist context. But then if we unite around an issue, we might learn about others and change. The pit strike of the early 80s was supported by people the miners mightn't have had much to do with before. Pretty much unreconstructed men saw their wives leading the battle and found themselves in common struggle with feminism and gay rights and terrible agitprop theatre. <laughs> Today, well-to-do villagers opposed to fracking are wary when a lot of noisy scruffs arrive to help and don't want any trouble, but then they see it's the police bringing the trouble at the behest of the frackers, officers using painful pressure points on the back of the neck, a technique they learned from some struck-off Vulcan acupuncturist. <laughs> And people see government and corporate power working together against the citizen. Not state versus capitalism, but state and capitalism versus us without a lizard in sight. The profit motive has triumphed over all other considerations. It's about ideas. There's no conspiracy, no secret about who has power. You can tell from their insane grins. Nigel Farage is an anti-establishment. He's part of it. If he wasn't, he wouldn't look so happy all the time. <laughs> But before we go, Carla and Gordon, before the programme, I asked each of you to come up with one way of being a better citizen. Well, Jeremy, I've realised that only by shaking off Westminster and governing ourselves can we build the society we want. So I've locked the studio doors. <laughs> how, how will we live? The BBC's secret underground bunker. There's enough food here for decades. We'll be fine. We can homeschool the children. Which will come from where? I'll sort that out. <laughs> By selective breeding, we can produce a race of superhumans. Best you don't get involved, Jeremy. <laughs> OK, uh, Carla. Well, I signed a petition that was on Twitter. 
That it? No, 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 no. That's one tiny gesture. There are hundreds of petitions on Twitter. <laughs> I'm also launching a crowdfunding pitch on Facebook to raise money to develop a smartphone app, which will mean that whenever a new petition appears online, your signature is added automatically. But what if it's for a bad thing? Ah, oh, well, that's the really cool thing. No one pays any attention to petitions. Ah, OK. Well, listen, and next week I'm planning to talk more about our responsibilities as co-citizens, but it'll be the end of the series, so I might just let the audience watch a DVD. Good night. <laughs> Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was drafted by Jeremy Hardy and put into effect by Gordon Kennedy and Carla Mendonca. Ultimate Control rested with David Tyler, and the programme was a positive production for the State Broadcasting Company of the United Kingdom. And next week, using the Bible, the monarchy and Audrey Hepburn, Jeremy promises to build a whole new you. In the meantime, if you check out BBC Sounds... Outspoken. People used to talk about bloated capitalists, but now realise that's irritable bowel syndrome. Insightful. Food has got better. Organic food came along, and that was good, even if it wasn't locally sourced. Who wants to eat pesticide just because it's from the neighbourhood? Four Extra remembers the many talents of Jeremy Hardy. <laughs> Beginning with his adaptation of Accidental Death of an Anarchist, starring Adrian Edmondson. It says here, unaffected by the accusations, the anarchist smiled disbelievingly. Who made this statement? She did! did. Available now on BBC Sounds. This is BBC Radio 4 Extra. Well, how do you like it? Five o'clock. Hello. Thank you for listening to 4 Extra. It's Wes Butters with more comedy on its way now, starting with the last in the series of The Architects, starring Geoffrey Whitehead. Then we'll catch up with Ed Reardon's week at half past, and it's the penultimate episode of his latest series, and sees a British horror film.